What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I was listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks with my kids and reliving how much I love those stories. But do you know what scene still gives me anxiety all these years later? It's when Harry sits under the sorting hat. <laughs> so there are, I don't know, what, seven or eight battle scenes with Voldemort, and it's the sorting hat that makes you anxious? <laughs> it is. I mean, to me, there's something so palpable about his anxiety in that sorting hat scene. Like, this dumb, fidgety hat determines your fate in front of your whole school. Yeah. And Harry's so nervous about it. Like he's sitting there sweating, desperately trying to outthink this test and trying to convince a dumb hat that he should be sorted into Gryffindor instead of Slytherin. And it's not like you're going to apply for a transfer from one house to another. Like once you're in, you're sorted for life. But what's terrifying to me is that your destiny is all wrapped up in that single moment, which I mean, I love to organize people using the sorting hat system. Like my dad is very clearly a Ravenclaw. My mom's a Hufflepuff. My Sister is obviously a Slytherin. He's totally a Slytherin. <laughs> but as I started to think about it more, I realized why I feel that anxiety. And it's from taking aptitude tests as a kid. Like in sixth grade, my whole class was forced to take a test that was supposed to give us a better sense of what careers we should pursue. But as I was taking it, I actually remember thinking, well, if I answer this question this way, does that mean I can't be a mechanical engineer? Or would this answer stop me from being a teacher? Like, I wanted options. I didn't want to be boxed in by an exam. Yeah. But revisiting that experience through the Harry Potter sorting hat made me wonder, how accurate are personality tests? And how much stock should we put in them? And is my sister really a Slytherin? Because she sure seems Slytherin to me. So that's what this episode is all about. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hotikader. And today we're going to talk about personality tests and whether they really work. 
But before we do that, I'm just going to place this marshmallow right here, Mango, right here in the middle of the table. <laughs> Come on, Will. You know you're trolling me. <laughs> and if you don't eat it for 15 minutes, there might just be another marshmallow for you. Here it is. You know how much I hate the marshmallow self-control experiment. I do, but I don't really understand why. Is it because you hate marshmallows? No, it's it's because I don't understand how it can be a good test. Like, people always talk about how a kid who has self-control is going to be successful. And I get how if someone tells a kid to sit and behave and not eat the marshmallow and they wait and delay their gratification, that it may be an indicator of a successful future for a certain type of kid. But what if that kid comes from a rough background? What if there isn't food security in his or her home? Or what if they come from a home where the adults lie to you? Isn't a hungry kid from that background going to rely on their experience and be more successful by eating the marshmallow in hand instead of waiting for two in the bush. Mm-hmm. Well, just for the record, no one's hiding marshmallows in bushes, but <laughs> I do agree with you. And more importantly, the test creator, Walter Michelle himself, agrees with you. How's that? Well, you know that wonderful podcast, Invisibilia? Uh-huh. So they had Walter Michelle on recently where he was voicing his frustration with the study. He was saying that it was totally misinterpreted. His feeling was that a kid's destiny and success can't be predicted by a single marshmallow. I mean, he thought that was just as ridiculous as we do. So I've gotten this wrong for a long time. What's the study actually about? Well, it's really about how personality is actually this flexible thing. Like if you take a kid who can't wait to eat a chocolate chip cookie. And to be clear, these children were basically cookie monsters with zero (laughs) self-control. But if you sit a cookie monster down and you encourage them to ignore the treat in front of them and pretend it isn't there... Suddenly, they can increase their willpower from a few seconds to up to 15 minutes. Whoa. So that actually feels like a totally different study, or at least very different from how I've always heard it talked about. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. Also, I I, just hearing about marshmallows makes me want to take this on a tangent about peeps and how marshmallow birds used to have wings. Like, (laughs) But since we're talking about self-control, I'm going to get this back on track. I'm impressed as the king of tangents. I'm impressed (laughs) with that self-control. So, well, we're going to talk today about personality tests and whether they really work. And we've got an incredible guest on today. It's Jonathan Katz from the cult comedy show You and I Love So Much, Dr. Katz. (laughs) And we've got two other very special guests on as well. That's right. We'll be talking to our sisters who are both super smart. And oddly, they both have PhDs in psychology. So we'll get them to analyze those a little later. How weird is that, that both of our sisters are PhDs in psychology? But uh, (laughs) but that'll be a lot of fun. Now, one of the reasons I like the story of Michelle's marshmallow test and how it's been extrapolated over the years is that Historically speaking, there seems to be this innate desire to predict our futures through tests and different experiments. Like if we only know this one thing about ourselves, we can figure out how to be a success. And it's kind of incredible how big the field is. So in 2012, personality testing was a $500 million industry with well over 2,500 tests on the market. And it's only grown since then. Yeah, business is clearly booming For decades, workplaces have used personality tests to groom management. Colleges have used them to pair roommates. You know, dating sites use them. I mean, there are Myers-Briggs variations all over the Internet. But before we get into those, why don't we talk a little about the first personality test that really took America by storm and inspired one of America's greatest poets along the way. And that's phrenology. Yeah, I'm all for it. But actually, before we do that, I do want to let our listeners know that we really started thinking about this topic and reading the book by Annie Murphy Paul called Cult of Personality. But anyway, you were saying. Yeah, I was talking about phrenology. So 
I don't know if this happens to you, but I feel like periodically I'll be in like a thrift store or a vintage shop and I'll see one of those skulls that is all mapped out with a particular ridge on the noggin, like something that shows like this is where courage comes from or anger or whatever. And I've always been curious how this skull mapping got its start. And it turns out it's all rooted in jealousy. Jealousy? How so? <laughs> it goes back to this guy, Franz Joseph Gall, who was studying medicine in Vienna in the 1780s, and he wasn't measuring up to his classmates. Basically, Gall knew he was smarter than his peers, or thought he was, but he found himself scoring lower on tests. So he tried to puzzle out how these inferior minds were beating him on exams, and then he noticed a pattern. They all had beady, bulging eyes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what he thought. So he took note and theorized that their aptitude for cramming verbal information was causing their eyes to protrude. Clearly. Like, yeah, their mind was supposedly pushing on their brains and making certain features more prominent on their heads. And once he got a degree, he started collecting data to support his theory. Like, he started with beggars and criminals trying to figure out where the telltale signs of pickpockets are. Then he moved to studying lower-class working folk. Like, he lured them into chatting with some good wine and get them to spill their secrets. And then he tried to map their heads against those traits. And he gradually moved up to high society. And along the way, he started charting various bumpy areas that could determine cowardice or quarrelsomeness, and along with things like mechanical aptitude. This all seems like a very weird recipe for stereotyping people. I mean, mm-hmm. actually, you know what it reminds me of just a little, and I know this isn't quite the same, But I remember seeing this story on society pages about Jews and how they used to dominate basketball in the early 1930s. So in trying to explain why Jews were so good at basketball, the New York Daily News said this. The game places a premium on an alert, scheming mind, flashy trickiness, artful dodging, and general smart aleckness. (laughs) It's explaining away their wins on the court with these horrible stereotypes. (laughs) But it's almost like when you don't understand how someone could be better than you, in Gaul's case it was exams, and in this case it was basketball, you just find a stereotype and explain the whole thing away. That's so weird. But, you know, this idea that you could divine someone's full nature by examining their skull's bumps, it was really captivating to the public. So it moved from Europe to America, where it really took off. Partially because practitioners moved from just identifying criminals and keeping the working class in their place to really flattering people they needed to believe in it. And it was bolstered by the fact that it all truly felt rooted in science. Like, phrenologists had painstakingly mapped over 30 areas of personality. But the real genius of selling it to the public was perfected by these two brothers, Orson and Lorenzo Fowler, and their partner, Samuel Wells. Like, together, they promised this mental photograph of your strengths and your weaknesses, which is basically what personality tests still do. I mean, as the author Annie Murphy-Paul points out, future presidents James Garfield and John Tyler, they were thoroughly impressed and convinced by their readings. And Claire Barden took courses in it. I mean, businesses were putting stock in it for assessing their hires. And this trend from the 1800s, it continued well into the 1930s. But the person it seems to have the most impact on, and this is the part I love about personality tests, is it truly affected Walt Whitman. Hmm. Like, as a wandering soul, he couldn't quite figure out what his career path should be, and his readings basically gave him the confidence to believe in his genius and actually push the boundaries of poetry. And oddly, some of the vocabulary in his poems, that comes straight from Phrenology Journal. Well, you know, I was reading up on the Fowlers, and they were such pop personalities at the time that they also had the ability to launch some interesting trends. Like Orson Fowler and his, quote, scientific research 
determined that circles were the most efficient design in nature. So he proposed that circular houses would make more efficient homes. <laughs> but since circles are hard to recreate, he suggested people build octagonal homes made of concrete. What? And the trend kind of took off. I mean, he advocated for some other modern ideas, too, like central heating, indoor plumbing, big glass windows, all of which he claimed would make for healthier living. But it's still kind of amazing that he was so respected that he could just say the words octagonal houses and snap, people would be all in. <laughs> Speaking of all in, I'm going to take these marshmallows and put them all into my mouth while we break for a quiz. That's a great idea. So who do we have on the line today, Mango? Well, we've got two very special guests, your sister and mine, Dr. Bama Hager and Dr. Shanta Hatikadur. Way to emphasize that doctor. That's right. <laughs> and a fun fact about them is that they're both way smarter than us, which not only have they told us repeatedly over the years, but they both have PhDs in psychology to prove it. How weird <laughs> is that? So welcome, Bama and Shanta. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Now, Mango, I have to say, my childhood, as you know, I've talked about this before and gone to therapy for this as well, was not <laughs> always easy having an older sister that um, was so interested in psychology that I kind of became a guinea pig. And she uh, figured out that I had OCD pretty early on and would set up these little experiments around the house and would wait for me to walk into a room when she'd move the salt and pepper shaker a little off center from the uh, kitchen table and <laughs> I would walk in and correct them. And of course she would jump out and be like, aha, I knew it. You're weird. So, uh, so th that's, that's what life was like for me as a kid. Uh, but Bama, so I have to ask you here, was this part of your inspiration for going on to become a psychologist? No question. I really didn't yeah, think about clinical child psychology um, until I got to watch you develop Will, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, the OCD thing definitely did not try to pick on you, but that is kind of current. So I still sort of move things around if I visit your house or <laughs> try to, you know, just put something ajar in the kitchen or, you know, maybe something that just shouldn't be there, like a pot holder on the counter. That's, that's just not right. Yeah, it's and just not right. I just kind of try to leave those things after I visit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's much appreciated. Now, currently you're working with the Autism Society of Alabama. Do you want to talk a little bit about the work you guys have been involved in very recently? Oh, sure. Um, I'm an autism advocate. So I have a PhD in clinical child psychology, uh, but my son, who is now 17, has autism spectrum disorder. So I'm an autism advocate and I don't currently practice. Uh, but just recently in the state of Alabama, we passed a um, autism insurance law so that um, private insurance will cover autism therapies. And that law has been passed, or a similar law, has been passed in 45 states, and we were the 46th. Uh, so we were thrilled to get that done, and we're hoping that it'll help thousands of Alabama families as they pay for autism therapies and, you know, try to help their child de develop to their potential. Mm -hmm. Which is amazing. Just yeah. watching that from a distance was incredible. Yeah. So this is, I, I wanted to say something about my sister. Uh, one of the things that's popular in our family lore is just how bossy and what a know-it-all she was when she was a kid. And there's this story about how we just moved into our neighborhood in Delaware and our mom looked out the window and there was this circle of neighbors just gossiping in front of our driveway. And uh, when she went to inquire what was going on, she found Shanta in the center explaining all the day's gossip to everyone. <laughs> and so, Shanta, I wanted to ask you, like, 
Why do you think you're uh, so interested in psychology? Do you think any of that's rooted in wanting to know what's going on with other people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I always wanted to uh, know everyone's business, I guess, (laughs) Uh, know what was going on. In fact, I think there's another story when we went to the zoo, and instead of looking at the animals, I was turned around looking at the people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've always been interested in in people and getting to know, you know, what makes them tick. You currently teach Shanta at the Temple in Philadelphia, but I heard you actually did your master's thesis on the equal sign. Now, it feels like the equal sign has been around for a while. So what sort of new discoveries are there to be made about it? Uh, yeah, the equal sign has been around for a little while. Um, but it turns out that kids still don't really understand it very well. Um, so, yeah, back when I was doing my master's, we were looking at um, what kids thought of the equal sign. And in fact, when you ask kids what the equal sign means, oftentimes they'll tell you what we call an operational definition that really thinks about what you do with the equal sign. So they'll say things like you put the answer after or you total up all of the numbers or, you know, you put whatever um, uh, sum you get in the blank after. Because kids are used to seeing um, equal sign and then a blank sign right after. But it turns out that those kids who actually do their homework more often um, and who get more practice with equal sign um, followed by a blank, they actually have a little bit more difficulty when they get to algebra um, and can't really understand the idea that it's a relational definition they need, which is really the idea that you have um, the same quantity on both sides. Huh. Yeah, she uh, she is we, smarter than we're you. We're trying to figure out you know, how to really help kids learn that uh, they have the wrong understanding of the equal sign. Well, let's get to the quiz here, Mango. What's the name of the game we're playing with our sisters today? It's a little game called Oh Brother, where every answer pays tribute to the wonderful set of brothers. All right. So if we were to say Groucho, Harpo, and Zeppo, you'd say... Mark's Brothers, right? And this is going to be pretty rapid fire, so we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock and see how many you can get, and you're playing as a team, so we'll take whatever answer gets blurted out first. So let's get that (laughs) clock ready. All right. You guys ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Question number one. Pioneers in flight, Wilbur and Orville were known as... The Wright Brothers. Yes. HGTV show where twins Jonathan. Should we stop now? Wait, 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 wait. Should we stop? Should we stop what? Because we got that one right. Should we stop? Should oh. we just say we won? Stop? No. <laughs> no, that's not how this works, Grandma. I, that sounds great to me. <laughs> and your time's off. <laughs> yes. And your time. Yeah. We won. Jonathan, yeah. we won. They did. We won. They won. Incredible. Okay. 100%. Good job, guys. We won again. All right. How's the clock going there, Mango? Okay. Here we go. All right, question number two. HGTV Brothers, where twins Jonathan and Drew help people transform fixer-uppers. I'm not going to know that one, Shanta. This, this is where Property, you, I don't know. Property Brothers? You got it. All right. Yes. Th- here you go. That's oh, good. <laughs> question number three. I like they celebrate over everyone. All right. Filmmakers, be- <laughs> filmmakers behind Fargo and The Big Lebowski. Cohen. Yes. 1980 movie featuring SNL stars John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Blues. Oh, this is embarrassing. Yes. All right. No, it's you got it. Blues. Question number five. Comedic brothers that include <laughs> Sean, Marlon, Damon, and Keenan Ivory. Wayne's brothers. You got it. All right. Production company that made Batman and Wonder Woman also used to be a TV network called WB. Warner Brothers. Warner brothers. Yes, you got it. All right. Yay, and Bama. The bonus question, the last one. American. Yeah, yes. We didn't. We didn't celebrate that one. Yay. Uh. <laughs> Yay. Okay. All right. Here we go. The bonus question: American pop psychologist and talk show personality who wrote a daily newspaper advice column from 1960 to 2013. And these are brothers? 
No. This is a trick question. No. Dr. Joyce Brothers. Yes. Dr. Joyce Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they flew through this and uh, did an amazing job. (laughs) Yeah. So, Shanta and Bama, you did incredibly well. And for that, you win our grand prize, which is a note to your mother from us singing your praises, which is especially poignant because it's our mother, too. (laughs) That's right. Congratulations, you two. And thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work, done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Today, we're talking about personality tests. Now, Mango, I know you and I both took an online Myers-Briggs knockoff test, so how'd you do? I aced it. Nice. (laughs) No, I got an INTJ, which means I'm introverted, intuitive, thinking, and judging, which actually kind of makes sense to me. I mean, Myers-Briggs, as you know, charts four binaries. Like, you could be introverted or extroverted. You could be intuitive or sensing. There's thinking or feeling and perceiving or judging. And those combinations yield 16 different personality types. But as an INTJ, I just want to let you know, I'm in really good company. Oh, yeah. Who else? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger is there, Jane Austen, Isaac Newton, also Jay-Z and Angela Lansbury. Oh, Lansbury. Now that (laughs) now it makes sense. You're totally a Lansbury. I mean, we're all pretty much the same person, like rapping bars and solving murders every week. Yep, yep. That sounds about right. Okay, well, I'm an ENFJ. Okay, so that means you're extroverted and intuitive and feeling and judging, which is great because we're both judgy. (laughs) But uh, that puts you in good company, too. You get 
Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, okay. <laughs> Martin Luther King. All right. I think every important black figure is an ENFJ. Yeah, that's that's pretty much always oh. been my goal. Oh, and also Bono. Yep, that's all of us, all important <laughs> black figures. Well done. So I'm always in two minds about this stuff. Like, I feel the same way about astrology. I'm happy to be a tourist when it means I'm just like Wes Anderson, who you know, shares my birthday or William Shakespeare because we're all talented and born in spring. But when it suggests I'm a Hitler or like a Genghis Khan who are also apparently born in spring, I get a little more suspicious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I tend to put a little more stock in personality tests than astrology. And (laughs) one of the geniuses of Myers-Briggs is that there aren't any bad types. Of course, it's also one of the criticisms. But part of the reason it really took off is because it was one of the first personality tests truly designed to understand healthy individuals. But before we get into that, let's go back a little and chat about one of its predecessors, the MMPI. The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. That's right. It is a little bit of a mouthful. But as you can guess, the test was developed in Minnesota. It was the work of a neuroscientist, J. Charlie McKinley, and the psychologist, Stark Hathaway, And the test was designed to understand and diagnose patients. And it's interesting because the questions are so drastically different from the test before it. So in prior data sheets, the questions were ridiculously transparent. And they would ask things like, are you happy most of the time? Which, (laughs) you know, is obviously easy to game. So the pair did something completely different. Instead of assuming they knew how patients would answer the questions, they surveyed a massive number of what they called Minnesota normals. But they also surveyed a number of patients. And if the majority of the normals answered a true-false question one way, while, say, schizophrenics patients answered another, they used that as a question that could indicate schizophrenia. Hmm. You know, I, I kind of want to support the Minnesota normal sports team. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so was this all, like, revolutionary for the time? Oh, absolutely. And it was surprisingly effective, but that's not the best part. I mean, what's truly fascinating is the strange mix of questions that came out of trying to understand and split up these populations. Let me just read you a few of the 504 questions on the list. So these are all things you can either agree with or disagree with in this in this survey. So the first one is, I think Lincoln was greater than Washington. <laughs> or women should not be allowed in cocktail bars. Or, this one's good, <laughs> if the money were right, I would like to work for a circus or a carnival. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, partially because they've lumped circus and carnival together. I feel like I'd be so in my head about what's the right thing to say. Yeah, and there were gross bodily ones, too. Like, I've never had any black tarry looking bowel movements. (laughs) (laughs) It's so gross. But the test took off with psychologists and psychiatrists across the country, partially because it was pretty scientific. I mean, a number of the other exams of the time, like the Rorschach ink blot test, which we've all seen samples of, they either overpathologized so-called normal patients, assigning them conditions they didn't have, or the test needed too much fuzzy interpretation. But with the MMPI, there were numbers to back up every conclusion. And Hathaway included all sorts of really smart trick questions that would raise red flags if a patient, you know, tried to outsmart the test or something. So by the mid-1950s, it was the most widely used test of its kind, used to diagnose illness in prisons, doctor's offices, and mental wards even. Which is interesting, but 
how did it transition into a personality test? I mean, it seems like it was being used to identify pathological extremes for the most part. Yeah, it was. But as more and more, quote, normal people took the test and more and more data was gathered, grad students started seeing these patterns in individual profiles. And so they started sorting these by strengths and weaknesses. So it became more of a personality test over time. But it wasn't an easy road for the MMPI. According to the cult of personality, after the era of McCarthyism had passed, the test was on the ropes because senators were wary of any exam that forced people to answer really prying questions. You know, the fact that it was used by government organizations and employers, that really bothered some representatives. But it squeaked past a congressional hearing on life support and then remained in pretty wide use. Then in the 1990s, it took another serious blow. Well, what happened then? It was 1998, and Renner Center told its employees that if they didn't pass the test, they couldn't be promoted into management roles. And when employees were forced to spend five hours answering what they felt were pretty irrelevant true-false questions, like, I would like to be a florist, or <laughs> I guess I know some pretty undesirable types, <laughs> they filed a class action. I mean, who doesn't know some pretty undesirable types? I mean, really. Apparently, one of them read, I'm a special agent of God, which... <laughs> Sounds maybe appropriate for a psychiatric evaluation, but kind of troubling in the context of determining whether someone could sell furniture. Although I'm guessing a special agent of God could sell furniture. Probably so. Probably so. What's crazy to me is just how popular the exam is around the globe. Like, I know it's been translated into Hmong and Urdu and Norwegian, which honestly feels so strange when you consider some of the questions that are getting asked. Like, I'm curious how the Hmong feel about whether Lincoln is a greater president than Washington and what that could possibly indicate other than a love of, like, small change. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting to see that while the MMPI had a second life as a personality test, Hathaway, who co-created it, was disillusioned by the end of his life about its value. He even said, I often have serious doubts about whether it is meaningful to expect that we can develop tests to measure or analyze personality. Of course, Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs felt a little differently. But why don't we talk about that after a little break? So, Mango, as you know, pretty much every day during college, right around lunchtime, we'd get together and watch our favorite show, Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. It was on Comedy Central. It was a show where he'd get comedians to come on and play themselves as they would be his patients uh, for him as he was playing this role of Dr. Katz. And this was around the time that we were starting Mental Floss. Now, do you think this may have had some inspiration or been some influence on us starting Mental Floss? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not, but it was a good show. <laughs> it made us laugh, and it was a lot of fun. Well, Audible actually is releasing a new season. It's been over a decade since Dr. Katz was on TV, and the first several episodes are out in audio form. On Audible, you'll hear guests such as Ray Romano, Sarah Silverman, Dom Irera, Weird Al, and several others. And we are so happy to have him on the line with us today. Jonathan Katz, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thank you. Jonathan, so how much do you rewatch the original show? And did you rewatch any of it for the new Audible series? Uh, I did, but it wasn't really that helpful because we're creating new episodes and um, it, it took me down a long, wonderful path. I mean, I do love to watch the show, but this was not the right occasion. You know, speaking of watching or rewatching the show, it's hard to remember how novel the Squiggle Vision was when it first came on. And I'm curious to hear why the decision was made to go with that style of animation. 
Well, uh, the two reasons. One is that the motion of the characters uh, represents their emotional turmoil, and it's cheap. <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe one but of those took priority. Actually, over neither, neither of those things are true. Actually, animation is expensive, <laughs> and my patients were not in turmoil when they showed up. So one of the things I love when I, you know, either read interviews or, or have heard interviews with you is that you're always so generous in crediting others. Like, I feel like you uh, talk about learning from Tom Snyder, how John Benjamin helped you break out of a rut and what fun it was to work together. Um, and I think that's such a rare thing, but it also comes up in your comedy. I feel like your position as a comedian on the show is is kind of a generous one. Can you talk about how hard it is to maybe be funny and facilitate a conversation like that? You know, in the early days of the show, it was made my actual interest in in their lives and how they felt. Because I, I do care about people, oddly enough. And um, that interfered with the comedy. <laughs> um, how so? It's just like, well, because there's nothing funny about the way they feel. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I happen to care about people in general, including comedians, but we discovered pretty early on that that wasn't working comedically and it wasn't certainly wasn't making anybody feel better. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm curious about that format then, the, the idea for having you know, guests come on and be your patients. It, it it seems like it would be a way, even though you're acting, it seems like it would be a way of maybe getting them to open up a little bit more. Did you did you find that to be the case? Uh, they did, and it, uh, it actually made one woman cry <laughs> and one guy feel better. <laughs> and this is this is a, a after eighty one episodes. It's not not a great record. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> now, did you find yourself pulling anything from actual therapy sessions, maybe your visits to a therapist, into the show in any way? Yeah, I, I did. But, but more importantly, um, is that I would spend hundreds of dollars trying to make my own therapist laugh, <laughs> which is just a total waste of money. Yeah, it seems like. It. Uh, I mean, she would have a great time. And then I'd and then I'd give her a check and I'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see how that might be problematic. But did you did you feel any yeah. better? I, I actually benefited from therapy a couple of times in my life, and I am a believer. We loved Gary Shandling so much, and and the fact that he was on your show, I was curious if if you went back and watched that episode after he passed away. I did, I did because I was hoping that they would show some of that footage at his memorial service. Um, so I was trying to put together a farewell mm -hmm. using footage of from the show and just my own my last conversations with the guy was so uh, so much the characteriz characterization of who he was because I reminded him that every time I laughed at one of his jokes he said it sounds like I'm, I've been shot <laughs> And then when I told when I reminded Gary of that, he said, "I think I said wounded." <laughs> so much like him, just to fine tune my memory. That's pretty terrific. 
all these incredible comedians. I feel like I I got to see more of through your show, and 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 that's part of the reason I loved it. In addition to liking the the storylines, I think when you guys were in college, most stand-up shows had to do with a brick wall. Yeah, and mm-hmm. somebody standing in front of it telling jokes. Mm-hmm. So it's a really nice departure, Doctor Katz, from that format. And and like Mango and some, was saying, it's, and it's, some things didn't work unless unless they were animated. Like this, a friend of mine, Lou Schneider, who is a comedian and worked for Raymond, talks about how when he came to Massachusetts to do the show, he discovered that there were things that would he could never tell on stage that but would would work in animation. And if I could think of one of those, it would be very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Waiting to hear what that was. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for uh, for joining us oh, today. Wait, are, yeah. Aren't you going to ask me any questions that might reveal my personality type? Right. <laughs> that's for or, actually. Or have, have we done that already? Have you? Yeah, we'll, we'll assess that after this. Have you heard any of the? Just out of curiosity, um, not really part of this interview. Have you heard any of uh, Paula Poundstone's new show? Oh, just a minute of it. I'm so happy she's doing a new show. Me too. She's one of my heroes, Paula Poundstone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they do that on uh, on her show. She's one of she's one of three people, three comedians who have made me lie down on the floor because I can't walk anymore because I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> who are the other two? Well, John Benjamin actually has made me faint twice. It's a whole other thing. <laughs> and then. The combination of Laura and Sarah Silverman made me lie down on in traffic in Los Angeles. <laughs> I couldn't, just laughing too hard. Jonathan, thanks so much for being on Part Time Genius. Hope everyone will check out the newest season of Dr. Katz Professional Therapist on Audible. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This summer, click into Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot and get after those outdoor projects with some serious cordless power from RYOBI. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the RYOBI 40-volt battery-powered mower. Leaves and debris are no match for the 40-volt power of the RYOBI leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work. Done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
So it's time to talk about the big one, the mother daughter of all personality tests. Myers Briggs. Myers Briggs. <laughs> right. So most people know at least a little of the origin story. Myers Briggs was developed by this very close mother daughter pair, Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers. And Catherine was fascinated with people and understanding them, and she craved time in her study. Like, she'd put her kids to bed, then she'd be reading and scrawling notes through the night, and for birthdays or anniversaries, all she wanted was more filing cabinets to store her papers. <laughs> she sounds pretty organized. <laughs> yeah, she was super passionate about it. But she really dug in when she met her future son-in-law and couldn't quite understand him. Like, she'd been reading Jung and realized Jung's rough observances on personalities could be useful in sorting people. And together with her daughter, she added the judging perception letter to the personality scheme, and it just took off. I mean, that's the very abridged version. Well, and she was so good about making her ideas appealing from the start. Like in the mid-1920s, Briggs wrote on an article for The New Republic called Meet Yourself Using the Personality Paint Box which doesn't really sound that much different from what colors your parachute or other books that would come out in later years. Exactly. She was like this born marketer. And Isabel, too, like she managed to build off of the scheme. She used these distinct personality types as characters in a detective novel and won a big deal publishing contest, like partially based on the idea that different personality types working together would be really more efficient. And together, they really developed this test, not just to understand others, but to help women find the best and most efficient jobs during wartime when men were away. It's pretty amazing, actually. Like, these two educated women were forced into life as housewives, and they were determined to do important work and have a larger impact on society. But what's interesting is that Jung didn't love the test. For instance, while he was happy for the fangirl attention they gave him, he warned Briggs from the get-go that it was dangerous to use his untested ideas and to apply them to things like child-rearing or sorting personalities. And he even wrote, every individual is an exception to the rule. Wow, which seems kind of odd, right? Like he wasn't flattered by the fact that they were built on his ideas? He really wasn't. You know, he didn't believe in a pure binary of things like a pure extrovert or a pure introvert. He even said such a man would be in the lunatic asylum. But that didn't stop the Myers-Briggs ascendancy. By the mid-20th century, the test was so popular, it was being licensed by the Educational Testing Service. Well, and today it's a behemoth. So Vox reported that over 2 million people still take the official test annually, and that company nets over $20 million a year. Hmm. Plus, it's basically spawned this cottage industry of knockoffs, right? Like some of the which sex in the city character are you or which Game of Thrones character are you? They're basically reporting that you're a Miranda because you're an INTJ or you're a Tyrion Lannister because you're an ENTP. But by the way, you're a total Miranda. <laughs> Jay-Z and I both take that as a compliment. Good. So you're right. The company is extremely healthy, but there is competition. And over the years, Myers-Briggs has come under some criticism for being too sunny. Like, because there are no bad types, it might not be accurately reflecting your weaknesses or sorting for those Slytherin qualities. As Jung points out, it gets criticism for being all black and white with little gray. If introversion and extroversion are actually a bell curve, which is what psychiatrists seem to think it is, there's a lot of space in there for people to share both qualities. And none of that's actually reflected in the results. Well, also, Myers-Briggs is frequently cited for inspiring the Barnum effect, which is basically if you say anything vague and complimentary enough, kind of like horoscopes, people will think it applies to them. Well, not to like pile on them. But one more criticism is that it's been called classist in the past. And 
you know, the site, the conversation pointed to some of the questions in the test, like, do you like to chat with clerks, hairdressers, porters, etc.? Which is, and I'm quoting the site, a test of introversion, extroversion, but it rather presumes that the people taking the test will not be the ones serving, carrying bags, or cutting hair. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've spent a good bit of time on this episode pointing out the flaws of personality test. Phrenology is obviously quackery, and something like the MMPI was initially created as this mental diagnostic test for specific conditions, which made sense, but then it was applied to understand full personalities. And Myers-Briggs is too optimistic and horoscopy at times, but... Back to the original question, why do we use personality tests and what's the real worth of them? You know, we did so much reading on the topic and I had the same question. It's funny, Malcolm Gladwell had this old great piece where he was talking about the ineptness of personality tests and he came up with his own binary test to analyze people. Oh yeah, I know, I saw this. So he made up his own version of the Myers-Briggs with categories like, are you a gobbler or a nibbler of information? <laughs> are you more of a canine or a feline in a relationship? Which I love because like, do you meet your partner at the door with a wagging tail or do you play hard to get and are you all moody? So I get Gladwell's point about the ridiculousness of some of this, but think about that Walt Whitman example. I mean, his personality test, however fraudulent it might have been, convinced one of America's greatest poets to follow his passion. And if you're getting a sunny diagnosis that encourages you to believe you're great and that you can do great things, and that there's a place for you in this big, confusing world... There's worth in that, right? I mean, it's like the original It Gets Better campaign. Well, definitely. I mean, on the other hand, you wouldn't want someone boxed into a professional or emotional corner, right? Like your friend you were talking about that uh, went to an Indian astrologer. <laughs> yeah, he sent his chart off and he's this brilliant PhD computer scientist. And the astrologer studied his times and came back and told him his only viable option in life was to be a farmer. But speaking of these tests, I called up a PhD, Bindu Methakalam who's assistant director of clinical training at Chestnut Hill College, and I asked her about the worth of personality tests. Bindu studies personality, and specifically she studies perfectionism, but when I asked her about the popularity of the tests and the potential for misuse, I was just kind of expecting her to validate what we're saying and say they're all hokum, but here's Bindu talking on the subject. Looking at personality and psychology, you're looking at the individual differences of a person. Um, so if you think about even the origins of what personality means, you know, comes from persona, which in Latin means mask, right? And so you're not just looking at what the person or the individual is showing other people, but what's underneath, right? What what doesn't get shown. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's more complex and it's influenced by like a variety of different factors. So, you know, for example, childhood experiences, family system, culture, sociopolitical climate, um, all these you know, factors can influence one's personality. And personality tests are used um, to get more information about the individual, to help uh, with maybe treatment goals, uh, maybe to clarify a particular question or an issue so you can see uh, what would be helpful for the person in treatment. Um, it is a part of what is used to get more thorough, holistic look at the person. Um, and it's, you know, used uh, these tests have been normed and validated. It, you don't want to just take it and think that that is the end result, right? You want to use it in conjunction with therapy or you want to use it in conjunction with maybe other tests 
to give you a broader sense of what's happening, right? And if you take it, you know, during one point in your life, you might have different experiences versus, you know, another time in your life. I know personally, you know, my training and my experience, um, I've used uh, the Myers-Briggs and MMPI. Um, you know, for, for example, I think the Myers-Briggs is used a lot in career counseling. Um, so it's used to, as, a, as one way to think about what might be a good career fit for an individual. And um, I know it's used a lot now in schools to help, uh, you know, students decide on majors and what, you know, what might be a good fit for them in terms of, uh, you know, course of study for them. Oh, that's really interesting. So we've been talking about it like personality tests are comprehensive, but really they're just one tool in an arsenal. Exactly. Like we as humans in this golden age of convenience, like we want a quick one test life hack for complete understanding of ourselves. And it'd be great if there was a marshmallow that could tell us if and how we were going to be successful. But I think part of the danger is trying to take these things too seriously on your own. Like it's almost like self-diagnosing yourself on WebMD. You might have some success rate, but it's better to visit someone who looks at this for a profession. And obviously, these tests are also evolving and have evolved over the years. Right. I mean, and there are newer tests, too, like the ones that measure for the five personality types, which supposedly give you more of an honest analysis of your traits and may even evolve to a test on a sixth trait, which, according to new scientists, will shed light on how much of a schemer you are and how Machiavellian your personality is. (laughs) A Slytherin scale. Right. And of course, like Walter Michelle was saying, your personality has room to change. According to New Scientist, one U.S. study showed that divorce can make women more extroverted and open to new experiences. And big life changes aren't the only thing. Like exposure to just four to eight weeks of psychotherapy has been shown to decrease neuroticism and increase extroversion. That said, I know now we shouldn't be reading too much into these personality tests without the help of a professional But I do think there's one thing we can manage safely on our own. The part-time genius fact off? (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, here's one to kick this off. One of the most curious psychology tests, the Rorschach, actually has a surprisingly strange origin. Before it was used as a psychiatric evaluation tool... It was a parlor game used for people's amusement. (laughs) In fact, it predates the Rorschach by about a 100 years. And get this, the ink blots were used for fortune telling and to inspire menacing poetry. (laughs) So speaking of Rorschach, did you know that after World War II, two American psychologists got access to prominent Nazis like Rudolf Hess and Hermann Goering actually in their cells in Nuremberg? And when they showed ink blots to them, the Nazis obliged with these incredibly vivid responses. In one inkblot, Hess saw, quote, two men talking about a crime with blood on their minds. Oh, <laughs> Another prisoner claimed that he saw a bear with teeth and legs and shadows, which represents Bolshevism overrunning Europe. Like, that's so specific. And, of course, these answers probably gave the Rorschach more credence than it deserved in deciphering people's traits and their tendencies and... Some psychologists actually refer to the test as Dracula because no one's been able to drive a stake through the cursed thing's heart. That's pretty crazy. So, all right. So here's one you might remember from the mental floss days, but I'd completely forgotten about it. Did you know that from the 40s to the 60s, at most Ivy League schools and top tier colleges, freshmen were required to pose naked? There are nude portraits somewhere of people like George Bush and Diane Sawyer because a psychologist named William Herbert Sheldon 
believed you could decipher a person's intelligence and potential success based on their body types. <laughs> In 1951, Life did a cover story on the project, and the tobacco industry used the pictures to study men and masculinity. Okay, so one last Rorschach fact, because I can't help myself. As Annie Murphy-Paul points out, when psychologists ask, what might this be? The only truly logical answer is an inkblot. But according to her, generally only severely mentally ill people give it. All right, here's one I think you'll like. While classical music and heavy metal seem completely dissimilar... According to Adrian North, a professor in Edinburgh, the psychological profiles of people who listen to classical or heavy metal are almost identical. Obviously, they tend to be for different age groups, but partially, it's about the music itself. Both are very grand and emotionally dramatic and also take a certain amount of mental openness to embrace and appreciate. That's crazy and so good. So I'm going to give you this round, and I really hope no one's analyzing my personality based on my Spotify playlist because... My kids have run wild with that thing. So, you know, we haven't given anyone a part-time genius award this episode. All right. Well, I've actually been thinking about this one, and I think we should give it to Walter the Marshmallow Man, Michelle. Oh, I actually love that. I've been talking badly about his marshmallow experiment forever, and to realize that his test actually embraces the idea that people can learn and change, like, that totally made my day. Wonderful. All right. Well, Walter, you'll be added to our official Hall of Genius, and we'll be sending you a certificate in the mail. And if you wait two weeks to open it, maybe we'll send you another one. So <laughs> that's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. You know what's amazing to look at is how people analyze handwriting for personality. Apparently, if you place the dot on your eyes too high, you're too optimistic. What? So watch out for that. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.